Welcome to the Canola Watch podcast. My name is Jay Wetter. The topic for this podcast is messy fields to bigger yields, entomology research on pest and beneficial insects in canola. Recordings are from the third installment of the Canola Watch winter webinar series held live on January 13th. In this podcast, we will learn about the benefits of biodiversity, about thresholds and pest management decisions, and about a new First for the Prairies Insect Research Center in Saskatchewan. We have three presenters, Paul Galpern, Hector Carcamo, and Sean Prager. As the presenters speak, you may hear them reference slides that you obviously can't see on this podcast. You can watch all segments of this webinar, including the slides, at youtube.com slash canola council. Paul Galpern is an associate professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Calgary. Paul's lab researches the sustainable intensification of cropping systems in Western Canada with a focus on benefits of non-farm spaces, those messy areas. Here's Paul. Thanks so much, Jay, and thank you very much for inviting me. I am indeed excited about uh, win-wins, and I hope to tell you about that. I want to start with the notion of a messy field and why it might matter to you and why it might matter in terms of beneficial insects as well. You know, what's going on inside those trees? Well, clearly this uh, grower has driven around them and has not cleared them. You know, uh, that's increased the gas usage, more seeding might have happened, fertilizing and spraying costs could have gone up as they inefficiently drive around them. But making the decision to leaving them there, was it a good one? And what can it do for the crop? And we're going to look at that. We're going to take the measure of messy fields from both earth and space in the next 12 minutes. So um, when I talk about messy and tidy fields on the top left, you can see what I would call some tidy fields. These are near Calgary. Uh, you can see the quarters that are with crop planted from fence row to fence row. And at the bottom left, there's a messier field. You've got patches of trees, you've got a wetland, you've got a shelter belt, and it's not all crop throughout the quarter. And what's going on on that messy field? Well, I can tell you that we know that there's a lot of things happening that uh, in those patches, those non-crop areas uh, that can help the crop. We've, we have things like pollination services. They are homes for bees that can go out there and, and pollinate the crop. We also have pest control that can happen in those patches. Spiders and beetles can march out from those patches and eat the bad guys in the fields. And there's other things that we might call ecosystem services or nature's contribution to people, whatever you like, whatever lingo you want to use, that's also happening in those spots on the messy field. Things like carbon storage in the roots of grass, water quality and regulation, and even habitat for all sorts of animals. Now, we're messy fields. So let's just take a bit of a closer look about what is actually going on biologically in terms of the different animals that you might see there. So here is a um, a wetland. It's a wetland, um, the canola field in bloom in the distance, just south of Calgary. So the slough's got a few ducks on it. And in the foreground, there are, uh, we've got grass, but we also have some wildflowers. And that, that whole ecosystem of the grass and the wildflowers provides a home for natural enemies, such as this beetle. And they can have a food source there all season long. And from there, they can march out into the field and munch the crop pests if there was a pest outbreak. Um, you know, so crop pests can be eaten by those beetles and spiders that are also making their home near the messy bit in your field. And it's also home, uh, it also provides resources for bees and those bees may head out into the field as well to pollinate and it provides spots for bees to nest parts of the ground that aren't frequently tilled or seed drilled. So there's less disturbance and it's easier for those bees to make their nest there. So that's why we call these messy bits. The example here is a wetland, but it could be a patch of trees or a shelter belt, places that are hot spots for animals that provide ecosystem services. But you know what? 
Um, how does that actually work? How does it actually affect your crop? It's fine to talk about the biology, but are they getting out of that feature and affecting the crop? And we, uh, we call that a spillover effect. Are the bees or the beetles or the spiders or the natural enemies that make these features, these messy places their home, are they getting out of that feature and are they doing stuff? For the crop. So we look for what we call a spillover effect. And I'm going to show you how we tested for that with the help of the Canola Agronomic Research Program. Since 2015, we have established what we call the Beneficial Insects Surveillance Network. And this has consisted of um, about 335 sites across Alberta, and you can see them here on these maps, places we've sampled, uh, and over 9,000 weeks worth of sampling, and we've gotten a whole range of animals, 300 bees and 41 beetles and 21 spider species, uh, and over almost 200,000 animals collected in, in, our, in our collection. And we can use this great deal of information to ask whether the animals are spilling over. We can do lots of other stuff with them, and we are doing that. I'm just gonna talk about the spillover part. Uh, and you can see uh, here's some data from our collection. And as you move away from a wetland, that's this graph here on the bottom left, as you move away from a wetland, and he here's the number of spiders we got, you can see the spiders drop off as you move away. And that effect changes at different times of the year. So this tells us that those wetland features are having an effect, they're a hot spot, but it also tells us that the animals are moving into the crop at different times of the season. And that's also true for this very common beetle. Uh, it does a very similar thing. And we also saw a similar pattern for, for bumblebees that we found in the crop. So, if you're a grower, what do you take from all this? And here's my notes to you. Retain these messy areas in your field. Add more, maybe. Restore ones that are there, because those keep the natural enemies and the pollinators close to your crop, where if they're needed, if there's a pest outbreak, they can do something. So retain them for a beneficial effect. So you know what, we found this spillover, we've got some evidence all across uh, our sampling across Alberta that animals are leaving these features, they're moving into the crop, but so what? Are they doing anything for the crop? Are they uh, helping uh, your crop um, produce more yield? And we call that effect a halo effect. If they are leaving this feature like this patch of, of trees in this wetland and they're moving out into the crop and they're eating the bad guys. If that's mattering at all to the crop, we might see a small boost in yield at a certain distance from those features. And we call that a halo effect. So we looked for that. And we did this as well, sponsored by the Canola Agronomic Research Program. We uh, used a precision yield data that we collected from about 100 growers, mostly in central Alberta. And we connected this to satellite imagery. So we, we can take pictures from space, and that's where the space bit comes in in this talk. We can take pictures from space and we can tell, uh, we can estimate the yield in different parts of your field from space. And we can build a model that connects precision yield to satellite imagery. So in a way we can spy on how your fields are doing uh, using this model. And what we, we can use that information to learn about how, uh, whether beneficial insects or be whether the messiness of fields is having an effect on the crop. So we looked at 757 fields, all near Vermilion, that's the yellow spots on this map, that's in central Alberta, and we, uh, we found this. We found that if you look at all of those fields, all those 757 fields all together, uh, and you, you, you go away from the edge of the field, so that's right here at zero, and you move away from the field edge, and you take the measure of the canola yield, here's low, here's high, as you move away from the edge of the field, initially you see that canola doesn't do very well. And you can see that. You look at the edge of any canola field and you know typically the plants aren't as vigorous and maybe the yield isn't as high. But it reaches a, hot, hot, a high point at a certain distance from the edge of the crop. 
And that peak that we're seeing here, that tells us that something good is happening, that we have that halo that I talked about, that the yield is peaking and then it kind of drops off again as you move further away. And we didn't just see an increase in yield, we also see an, in, an increase in the stability of the yield. And this, what stability means is how consistent are the plants? They're not just producing more seeds, but all of the plants and their neighbors are producing roughly the same number of seeds. And that kind of matters because it also tells us about quality. So we found a similar effect as you move away from one of these patches, we find that the stability uh, increases or in other words, the variability among plants drops. So let's put those pieces together. And what we find is there is a sweet spot, a certain distance from these messy places where we think beneficial insects are having an effect on the crop. And that sweet spot uh, is roughly about 50 to 100 meters from the edge of the field. So here's a message for growers, canola plants, about 50 to 100 meters from the edge are getting the most benefit from ecosystem services. It's a small benefit. It isn't a big one. It isn't gonna change the profitability to a great degree. We didn't find a big effect, but we found some effect. And that tells us that those pest animals that can do the pest control are potentially there when they're needed, when there's a pest outbreak. We found something else too that much worth telling you about. It's that it's not just what's in your field, the messy stuff inside, it's also what's near your field that might affect your yield. And the big story here is uh, on this, this is a graph, it's not a picture of a field. As you increase the messiness, the number of things that aren't crop in your field or near your field, um, it has a, 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 and you also increase the number of crop fields that are nearby, there's also a sweet spot here. So what this tells us is that um, messy field margins, so in other words, you could have messy bits near your field that can boost your yield, but it can only boost your yield if there's also other crops nearby. So it's, we want some mess, but not too much mess. There's something in the middle, you know, like the Goldilocks zone, just enough, your porridge is just the right temperature here. So we want some mess, but not too much. And I can unpack this figure more if there's more questions later. We also tested this at the scale of Alberta. We wanted to know a bit further, do we see this effect across the whole of the province? And to do that, we used yield data provided by Alberta's crop insurance provider. We had about 60 million seeded acres between 2012 and 2017. And we found the same thing. We found that there is a sweet spot that messiness can boost the yield just a little bit, but you know, not too, we don't want too much messiness. So there's a little bit in between. And we saw that effect in canola, in wheat, uh, in barley and peas and oats. So let's pull the pieces together here in the last minute or and a half. And the story I wanted to tell you here is that messy places in fields, whether that's a wetland like this one or patches of trees or a shelter belt, if we can retain or restore or add new messy places, that provides a place, a home for beneficial insects like the beetles and spiders that can provide pest control during an outbreak or the pollinators that might help canola yield. And that in turn, ha we've seen an effect. We haven't connected it directly to these animals, but we've connected the messy places to the yield. And that tells us that there is some kind of ecosystem service happening in these messy places that is having a boost, that's affecting that yield just a little bit. And that might in turn incentivize growers to keep these messy places in place. And there's other benefits as well to having patches of trees or wetlands in your fields or near your fields. They can deliver carbon storage. They provide habitat. They can support sustainability objectives. And you know, if you're a grower, you can think about this in terms of social license to operate. You know, uh, you're actually, you're not hitting your crop. It might even benefit your crop. And it also helps uh, the environmental sustainability. And in future, it's very likely we're gonna see markets for the services 
that these places provide. So I just want to summarize and say, looking across the prairies, and that's all the yellow stuff, those are all the canola fields, that's the canola rotation footprint across the prairies, I see potential for win-wins. Wins for ecosystem services when we protect the messy places, homes for beneficial insects that can boost your yield just a little bit, and the opportunity for all sorts of other good stuff that comes with that. That was Paul Gelpern. The next presenter is Hector Carcamo, a research scientist specializing in insect pest management at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lethbridge, Alberta. Hector talks about pest management thresholds and why they're important, particularly for the health of our allies, the beneficial insects. Here's Hector. So what I'm going to do is uh, give you a very quick overview of the key pests that I work on in terms of uh, kind of the bottom line messages as far as uh, what, what's, what's key information. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to tell you in general about plants and insects. And just to remind you that uh, insects, just like the ligus bugs and their interaction with plants, like the canola plant, for example, they have been co-evolving and interacting for millions and millions of years. So they have had this kind of love-hate relationship that is always uh, changing. And uh, insect, insect and plants have a very, very complicated relationship. So it's not always uh, a negative relationship. Uh, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about what we perceive as pests. For example, an insect like a ligus bug can actually be a beneficial insect to have early on during the early flower stages of canola if you only have a few of them. And this has been documented for not just ligus, but also for other insects. It has been shown, for example, grasshoppers in sunflowers, uh, cabbage seafood weevil in, uh, in some canola cultivars in Sweden, for example. If you only have a few insects sometimes, you actually get a little bit of a boosting yield. So just to remind you that they have a, a complicated relationship. So first I want to talk about flea beetles. This is probably the number one insect pest in the prairies, uh, regardless of how you look at it in, in terms of the amount of insecticide that is used, uh, in terms of uh, seed treatments, or even foliar spray that are applied and geographic distribution. So there are three species that are, that are found in crops. The ones that we, mostly worry about are the uh, crucifer flea beetles. Here is shiny black. These are the bluish ones here, so we don't see very often. Those are the hop flea beetles. And the striped flea beetle, which is a serious, serious issue <clears throat> because it's not controlled as easily with you know, insecticides as, as the other species. So what should we remember about flea beetles? Well, first of all, they are a key pest during the seedling stage. So before the crop has two to four true leaves, during the cotyledon stage, that's when you want to be on the field uh, scouting and you want to check for the uh, damage on the cotyledon. The um, economic injury level, the economic threshold is 25% of the foliage damage. So that's what you're going to be looking for. And remember that the damage is going to be more severe around the edges of the fields. And if you have a very warm day, something like a 25 degree days in uh, late May, early June, you may actually have a massive influx, which can be very devastating for the field. So keep an eye on the um, beetles. Uh, here I've shown a photo of a pollen beetle, which is one that we don't have yet. Uh, it's a, another pest that is in Eastern Canada and potentially could be moving to the, our region. Hopefully that's not the case. We keep an eye on it. And so far we have not found it. Next, I want to talk about cave seafood weevil. Uh, this is another pest that attacks canola. At the, uh, this one comes to the crop at the bolting stage, even at the, at the late bolt stage, you can find them. Uh, but they start feeding on the crop and you will see largest numbers at the early flower. And early flower means approximately one week after you see the very first flower in your canola field. That is the time when you should be scouting quite intensively. And again, you will see more abundance along the edges and they, they eventually they will move into the rest of the field. So if you're on the ball, you could actually manage this crop by just spraying the borders of the, the field and that will uh, save you some money and some time. 
you could also try a trap crop if you if you have varieties that are uh, a little bit different in the in the flowering time you could plant the border with an earlier flowering variety and then the rest of the field you can either plant it a bit late or plant the later variety and i think now that we have shattered the system cultivars we actually have a chance to do that and do it successfully okay the last pest i want to talk about is one of my favorite uh, pet insect pests these are the ligus bows you can see there are I have a slide here showing the, the tiny first instar baby. They're only about uh, less than one millimeter. But once they start developing these wing pads, they actually become damaging. And once they are at the, at the third uh, nymphal instar, around two millimeters, you can actually start to see the uh, wing pads developing. And you can start to see these black spots developing also. That's when their mouth parts are long enough and they can penetrate the canola pods and, and the damage. So the time to uh, scout for ligus bugs is generally is the uh, early pod stage. It usually happens when the crop has completed 90% of its flowering. That means that when you look at the crop, you're going to still see a few yellow flowers, but it's going to be mostly green. So that is the time when ligus bugs are most uh, dangerous to the canola crop. Uh, some people ask the question, should I actually spray ligus at early flower if I see enough of them? Hey, last year we had a really major ligus outbreak and we actually learned some important lessons. One of them is that yes, in the rare events when you have more than three ligus per sweep at the early flower stage, there is the potential for them to cause damage because they feed on the flowers and the buds. Generally, that is not a problem. So if you have less than that number, don't worry about them. If you have very high numbers, then you may have to spray, but then you are into a major uh, challenging period because also the uh, pollinators are flying and lots of natural enemies are flying at that time. So the best thing to do is to spray only at the early pod stage. Also because spraying at early flower does not guarantee that you do not have to spray again at the early pod stage. So this last year, people have to spray two times because the ligus numbers were so bad. So key message there, remember the threshold now is three ligus per sweep and the key vulnerable stage is the early pod. Okay, those are my messages about best insects. Now I want to just take the last uh, one minute and 17 seconds I have to talk about beneficial insects. And I want to make two important points. Uh, you plant more than canola in the field. You plant wheat, you plant peas, and you plant other crops. And whatever you do on one crop could have repercussions on the crop the next year or on adjacent crops. And uh, to illustrate that point, I want to talk about some of these uh, wasps here. Uh, for example, this one here is called Diolcogaster. It's a specialist on diamondback moth. And it happens to be very active during the time when cabeciput weevils are also active. So when you're spraying for cabeciput weevils, if you don't have, I forgot to tell you the economic thresholds for those. So the economic threshold for weevils is 25 to 40 weevils per 10 sweeps. So around three to four, you can round it up. So if you are below those thresholds or just around those thresholds, don't spray because you may be killing these uh, parasitoids. And, and it's not just this parasitoid, you could also be affecting uh, this other guy here, this one, Tetrasticus julis, uh, Alejandro Costamagna at the University of Manitoba and myself had a graduate student who completed a landscape study. And his study suggested that if you have more canola in the landscape, then you actually have higher levels of parasitism on the cereal leaf beetle nearby in, in wheat fields. So whatever you do in that field of canola, where you are actually attracting a lot of uh, beneficial insects and pollinators because of the flowers, if you spray there, the insecticides are not just going to kill the pest, they're also going to uh, wipe out the beneficial insects. And that may have repercussions for insect pests like wisdom sulfide, for example, it's another example. There is a little orange wasp by the name of Bracon cephi, And that is also active at the time when canola is in flower and it's going to come out of the, uh, of the stubble. Hopefully you, you left very high stubble for it over winter in the, in the wheat from this past year. It will come out when canola could be there and if you're spraying, you could be taking that out also. Plus there's the karate beetles, of course, let's not forget them and the spiders that, uh, that you heard about. So I guess the message is uh, follow the economic thresholds, even if they're nominal thresholds and do not 
reduce them just because canola prices have doubled because the interaction of the insects and the plants is an interaction that is not dependent on economics. It's a biological interaction. It has been co-evolving for millions of years. And if we, uh, if we do things right, we can actually help this natural enemy. This uh, I like to think of it as a, as a kind of a free service provided by this uh, army of three natural enemies at our disposal. And with that, I will stop. I think I went a little bit over time. That was Hector Carcamo. The final presenter before the Q&A session is Sean Prager, an entomologist and assistant professor at the University of Saskatchewan. Sean is also director of a soon-to-be-opened insect research facility at the U of S. Here's Sean. Yeah, so this is a little bit something different, but I'm just going to talk to you a bit about our new facility, our new toy. And in particular, I want to talk about it because I sort of a good portion of the funding, about a third roughly of the industry funding for this facility is coming from canola funds. <clears throat> so we do call it the University of Saskatchewan Insect Research Facility or USURF for short. Um, partly it's just so we can show cute cartoons of surfing insects. <clears throat> but what is and why do we have this? So first I just want to give a basic idea of why we need such a facility. And that is that at the University of Saskatchewan and, and really in many places um, in the prairies, but really at the U of S in particular, we don't have have a lot of infrastructure for insect research. Um, and that's a historical thing, largely because we didn't have a lot of entomology research done at the university. It was mostly done by Ag Canada. But the result is that we are very limited in both um, who we can train and how we can train in the kind of work we do. And when we do need to do certain kinds of work, we can only do it by um, collaborations with Agriculture Canada. And that's often difficult because of the restrictions on who can access their facilities. And this is even with outside COVID and also just general capacity. So to solve that, we have built our own facility or we're building our facility. And there's a special feature of this facility, which is that it's one of, if not the only facility in, the uh, in a university, certainly in the prairies that is um, PPC2. So PPC2 basically means that the Canadian Food Inspection Agency um, has assigned various different uh, levels of concern to different kinds of insects. I'll show you a little chart about this in a sec. And basically what it amounts to are things that they, they consider to be particularly important as um, having the potential to damage uh, crops in a particular location. And so because of that, what they do is they require you to have certain kinds of um, quarantines or permits to bring those insects or pathogens into your location. And in order to do that, you need these special facilities. And so these facilities are really based around this idea that you want to balance the likelihood that the particular thing you're going to work with will establish and the consequence of it doing so. So what were they really saying is, and you can see in this chart, PPC2 are these yellow boxes. I sort of highlighted them in black. What they're really saying is, we don't wanna bring in things that would be really problematic for agriculture. So a pest that doesn't yet exist or beneficial that we don't know whether or not it would have effects on things that we don't want to um, change and that it's likely to be able to survive in a particular environment. So with that, a good idea of thinking about why having such a facility um, here is this. Paul has talked about a lot about the benefits on a landscape scale of having beneficial insects and how having the right balances can help you and why you want spiders and beetles and all sorts of things. And Hector is sort of giving you a little bit of an idea of how their interactions is. But this facility allows us to dig into the biology of these organisms and not just the organisms we already have here, but the organisms we don't have here, the ones that aren't yet in Saskatchewan or in Alberta or, um, that we really wanna look at for one reason or another, but we can't let out into the environment. And this can mean all kinds of things. It could be um, genetics or phylogeography. So we can ask questions about where do insects come from and how do they migrate and how do they damage plants? And we can do this all in a very controlled way. It also allows us to train students because to do this work otherwise would either not be possible or requires to send them over to Ag Canada if they would be allowed to. So let me just explain what this facility is. So what is USERF? Well, the short answer, it's a really fancy room. Um, a little bit longer answer, it's a space equipped with many controlled growth chambers that has been designed to meet a set of very particular standards that um, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency has set forth. And these cover everything from how you can operate in the facility to the kinds of tables you can use and the flooring and the lighting 
and the uh, HVAC systems. It's all designed to make sure nothing that you bring in there will escape so that you can work on things that would otherwise be problematic. So let me just give you a quick idea of what it looks like. So for those of you familiar with the University of Saskatchewan campus, this is the agriculture building. So the red arrow points to where it is on campus. This is the big ag building. It's the big shiny glass building. And it has six floors and our facility will be located on the sixth floor. So these red boxes indicate sort of the broader um, confines of my research labs and what will really be the uh, um, user facility. But the heart of the, of the user facility will be this area here. So it's this part that's highlighted really sort of in this red, um, uh, red larger rectangle. And it's the part that's really in this red square here. So what we're going to do is, is position within our existing lab space, this special rearing area. And this is sort of a diagram of what it is. And really what this amounts to is a couple of walk-in chambers. And these are special chambers that um, allow us to control temperature and humidity and all of the conditions that you might want for growing plants or maintaining insects. And this is what they would look like inside. So you can see they're very, very large rooms. They have shelves, they have special doors. Um, we can build flight cages for pollinators. We can bring in different kinds of insects and different plants. We can change almost any condition in it. So we can look at all sorts of interactions and, and relationships between plants and insects and pathogens. It also has five re, uh, reaching chambers. So this is where we keep our insects. So this allows us to keep uh, different kinds of insects around all the time. So we can work on them all the time. Um, we don't need to work them on the field and we don't need to recollect them. Um, so that gives us a lot of flexibility. It has special facilities for disposing of these things, because again, we do not want them to get into the environment. And this allows us to dispose of both insects and also pathogens. So something like club root, if we wanted to work on it without um, putting risk to growers in the area or something like that as a work area, of course, because you need to be able to do some work. And what's nice about this also is that it is then attached to our wet entomology lab. So our facilities to do sort of more traditional entomology and then our extraction lab. And then next to that, our molecular lab. So we can rear these insects, we can do experiments on them, we can look at the genetics of them, we can do chemical ecology, all sorts of work can be done. And it's basically done like this. Within the quarantine, we keep the insects in these chambers and we do the experiments that require them to be alive where we don't want them to get out. We can do this um, in part because we have a large phytotron in the basement of our building. So we have lots of growth facilities for plants and then we can bring these plants into these walk-in chambers. So what's represented over here and do the different kind of work. And then in different ways, once the insects are no longer a threat to us because they're dead or frozen or something like that, we can, we can bring them back out into these molecular labs and we can do molecular biology, all kinds of things like that. So, so what this allows us to do then is get to some uh, questions of that are of actual economic benefits. Um, and really what it comes down to is that almost 40% of all crops grown in the world are lost to pests. And that results in 77% of all agricultural pesticide use, or that is, I should say, all pesticide use on plants is used in agriculture. Sorry, I'm going a little faster. What does this mean? Well, what it really means is this allows us to get at some of the mechanisms of things to try to understand how can we optimize some of what we do. And in canola, it really looks like this. So this is a, just to, to get at why this is an important facility. These are the major canola or sort of rapeseed pests in the world. And what you can see, there's about seven that we recognize in Canada, 10 in Australia, 10 in China, and about 17 in Europe. Now, what may, some of you may realize is that some of the pests that we have in Canada have actually come from other places, Europe, China, and Australia. And because we know some of these come, a lot of what we want to do is try to sort of preemptively study how these pests would work in our environment or do we have natural enemies that might be able to attack them already? Or do we need to make new thresholds? And all of that requires to, us to keep these insects, which obviously we don't want to do in a way where they might get out into the world and attack um, our existing plants. And our new facility is basically designed to let us do that. So it lets us take things like these rape stem weevils, bring them back to uh, Saskatoon and work on them with our varieties of canola and things like that. So we can kind of get out ahead of it. And so bring it back, what can we do? Well, we can do all kinds of things. And mostly we can do them on those insects, those species that we would not otherwise be able to work with because we would be um, threatening in the environment if we let them out. And most importantly, it lets us do it using with students involved, which is very difficult in any other way. So we can train students. It also just 
adds our um, capacity. So we can train more students and we can train them at the highest levels of um, entomological research and chemical ecology and genetics and all sorts of things like that. And this will just produce more knowledgeable people to help growers in addition to the actual knowledge we're going to produce. For the Q&A segment, recorded as part of a live webinar, we brought in Keith Gobert to provide agronomy angles. Keith is an agronomy specialist with the Canola Council of Canada. Here's the Q&A. Paul, I want to go back to you. Um, John asks, what type of messiness is better, uh, many small uh, patches or a few larger ones? What's your thought? Yeah, thank, thanks a lot for this question. <clears throat> you know, it, I think we can say that many small features, uh, you know, that's many small wetlands, let's say, or many small patches of trees, that's going to create a lot of edge. And one of the real key messages we got from our, our satellite, um, you know, the story that I told you there, is that uh, right up against the edge of a, a wetland or a patch of trees, you're going to see a drop in yield. And I mean, and, and growers know that they've seen that they can when they scout the crop, they see that the plants near the edge aren't necessarily doing as well. So that's not a big surprise. Um, but I think what we are realizing, and we can actually model this, is there will be a sweet spot. So I think we can say outright lots of small little features probably is going to give you too much edge. But there's going to be a sweet spot where we have fewer features of a larger size that are going to you know, spread, spread the wealth, if you like, across that field. And we could actually, if you like, design an ideal field based on what we know right now. And that's certainly an exercise that we, we are in the process of, of trying to do. But I know this is unsatisfying to those who want to know, what do I do tomorrow to my field? And I, I'm not comfortable yet saying, do exactly this. I am comfortable saying, though, you need to uh, keep as much of these messy areas as you can um, you know, uh, to provide homes for beneficial insects. But you want to make sure that the fields around you are roughly, are, are also, also have crop in them too. So we know that when you have too much mess in your field and the fields around you aren't messy, that uh, that actually is the ideal sweet spot. Hope that answers. Uh, uh, yeah, I think John points to a, I mean, a logistical question. I mean, we've got large field equipment, maybe not getting larger, but uh, there was quite a growth over the past couple of decades. Uh, just negotiating around some of these many small areas, um, many messy areas might be, it might be easier to have just a few big ones. One question, one quick one, follow up on that, Paul, though, you, you said about other crops. Now, are you saying uh, rotation, like, so a wheat crop beside a canola crop beside a pulse crop, or does it, does it really matter what the rotation is or what the border crops are, or just that there's other crops? The studies we've done, um, did not look at what the other crops were. So um, we just know that when you're, so if you're in a district, if you're in the part of the prairies where there aren't a lot of crop fields around, um, adding more mess to your field is not gonna help and it might actually hurt. If you're in a part of the prairies like, um, uh, you know, Southern Alberta, where there is not a lot of mess, adding mess to your field is likely to help. So that's, that's really another way of, of framing the message. Hector, do you want to take a minute and, and describe how a trap crop might work for cabbage seed pod revo management? Gladly. Yes, so, so a trap crop is a very old concept that has been used for ages and uh, it's especially very common in, in uh, other countries. Uh, the idea is that you have either a crop or a different crop be the same crop at a different stage but basically it's more attractive to the insect pest where you can concentrate it and it will leave the main crop alone or at least you will have a reduced abundance and you, you actually can 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 uh, control it in the area where it's concentrated so for caveat seed weevil it actually works quite well because the weevils are attracted to the crop at the flower stage in particular so if you plant a canola variety that will flower earlier along the perimeter of the field and when we did this work about almost 20 years ago now, 
we were actually using Polish canola on the borders and Argentine canola in the middle. But we also used the same cultivar, just planted a few days, well, a week sometimes. Now there's such a wide array of cultivars and most of them are now shatter resistant. They vary in the flowering maturity. So if you, if you choose the right cultivars and you plant them a few days apart, you actually will obtain that uh, about a week time window. That would allow the cabezi for people to get concentrated along the borders, and then you can you can spray it there, and you uh, you save ninety percent of the insecticide amount. You know, also the time, and you're not killing the beneficials in the entire area of the field. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a potentially very very beneficial. I, I just want to say very quickly that uh, I'm quite excited to uh, there is now a new develop development in terms of uh, AP vectoring where, where people are actually using honeybees and pollinators to vector uh, things like Boveria bassiana uh, pathogens that can kill insects and I think that even has better potential to even get away from using more insecticides you could probably use honeybees to uh, to deliver pathogens to lycus bows and cavecifer weevils in the trap strip where it's concentrated. And that might be uh, even a more integrated and more environmentally friendly, more sustainable way to manage this crop pest. And I actually, I'm thinking and toying with the idea of applying for funding to do this in the next cluster, a really cluster science cycle. In fact, that is one of the, the design intentions of the new facility. So we actually built that with that particular project as one of the things we intended to do. And so we've already been thinking about that actually quite a bit. Um, but the issue comes back to exactly what I was sort of describing, which is that in many cases, what you need to do is you need to identify the virus that will effectively control the particular pest you're, insected, you're interested in, assuming a virus, which is what we're particularly interested in doing is insect viruses. You obviously don't want to release that into the world because if you pick the wrong one, it might start killing the beneficials. It might kill other things that are neutral, right? It, it could go after things that aren't helpful. Why this facility is helpful is just that. It allows us to do this kind of work in a way where we don't have to think about what happens if one of our critters escapes. Well, that'll be really exciting to see what your, your lab comes up with. All right, here's another one for you from Harry. What insect pests fall into your forbidden category and what kinds of insects are allowable? That's a good question. So I guess I would say it's not my list so much as it's the Canadian Food Inspection Agency's list. Um, so, and, and their list, it, it's evolving, it changes. So you can actually go on the internet and look, but generally speaking, the list, the forbidden insects are those that either are not endemic to a particular area or are not yet established. And, and, I, and I showed you that little diagram. So there's some things that are absolutely forbidden. Um, and then there's some that might be forbidden in one place and not another. Uh, and then there are a lot that you don't even think about. And so they're not explicitly listed, but you need a permit for them because we'd have to import them. So, so in many ways, the question is, can we import them? And often what will happen is if I wanted to import them, say from Europe, so say, say I want to get one of the things that Keith doesn't want us to get. Um, what we would do is we would either go to Europe ourselves when that's still possible, or you'd call someone there and ask them to send them to you. And you get a permit and that permit would often say, well, you need to have a, a quarantine of certain level, one, two, three, in this case, most likely to two, to keep them. And then we would say, oh, well, we have one of those. And then they would give us the permit and that would allow us to get it. And those decisions can be made on a per species sort of basis, per permit basis by the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. I've got a bunch of questions here for Paul, actually. Uh, and this comes from Autumn. Are there any particular plant species that you'd like to see growing in the messy spaces to optimize the benefit? Or, or on the other hand, plant species you don't want to see? So what's, what are the best species? You know, I'd like to be able to answer that question and tell you what to plant, but I can't in all honesty. Um, at the moment, um, we, we have been, because there's so many different plant species out there and we need to do this across a big, a big area, we've been looking at vegetation in terms of crop and non-crop. So that's very, it's very, very coarse. Uh, but I think that's definitely a question that we need to approach and we need to, we need to answer it. So it's, it's a good question, but I'm sorry, Autumn and Jay, I cannot give you one at this point. 
Okay, Paul, this is a, another one for you. And this is a really good one from Cameron um, asking about ditches as messy spaces, ditches, uh, road allowances, that kind of thing. Uh, very handy, messy spaces. Do they qualify as beneficial messy spaces? And then part B to that question is um, what happens to the, the benefit if we mow the ditch? So do ditches count? And what happens if we mow them, Paul? We counted ditches in all of our work. In fact, we sampled in ditches for, we, we found lots of beneficial insects in ditches. We looked at ditches when we looked at the effect it might have on yield. So I would say, based on what I've told you, ditches qualify as a messy space. Whether you mow them or not is a complex issue. We know that mowing ditches can actually benefit bees, but I think it's very likely not to benefit your natural enemies. Um, you know, uh, they might need to find some flowers there that have nectar in them. If you're cutting the flowers off, there's no nectar for these natural enemies. And, you know, your beetles that are eating your pests may also need that. Hector, you're going to add something there? Yeah, I just an, an, a specific example with the wisdom soft life, the parasitoid bracon cephi that actually over it's, 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 uh, the beaches and the grasses there, they're actually a refuge for that, that pest. So in years when the soft light is low, it looks like it persists in those ditches. So if people are mowing them, they're probably destroying the uh, the parasitoid. Uh, okay, um, let's let's squeeze in one quick one, and this is also for uh, Paul and and for Hector. Herb asks, uh, could judicious use of trap crops result in the same benefit as messiness without the drawbacks? I'll say yes. Let's try it, Hector. Let's do it. I agree also. I think uh, as much as you can, diversify your agroecosystem and adding this uh, bit of heterogeneity, you know, more diversity, more complexity, more messiness, you you're going to have uh, crops at various stages. I think that's going to help you. To close the webinar, I asked each presenter for a quick recap of their key message. We're going to go in reverse order. So Sean, what's your last word? That's my last word. My last word is that pest management, both pathogens and especially insects, tends to be a reactive process. We um, spray fields after we see things that we don't like, and we start developing the ways we manage them only after we start becoming aware of problems. And that's a very bad way of doing things. And so what we need to do, and that's both as growers and scientists, is to start thinking about it the other way. And that is to start thinking about how do you make the world something where these won't become problems. And that, and that is the link between everything we're talking about. That is why all the work Paul's doing is helpful because it is this, it is keeping these areas that help um, make so that there are no pest problems. It is doing all the things Hector's talking about, making sure you keep your beneficials around and scouting. And, um, and it's doing some of the things that we're trying to do, which is to have the tools already available. So when you start seeing problems, you know how to handle them rather than having them become problems. So, so that's, that is my takeaway is to remember that um, really one of the keys that we need to do is to switch from being a, a world where we react to problems to a world where we try to anticipate them a little bit and do those things that are, um, yeah, sort of prophylactic and, and preemptive. And that will save people money um, I'm quite certain of it for both inputs and because of the environmental impacts being reduced. Great, thanks, Sean. Hector. Okay, hey, uh, I hope I don't I don't uh, repeat or don't steal Paul's thunder with my take-home message. But I'm going to say, think big, think long term. Uh, and when I say think big, is think not just of even your own field or your own farm. Think think of your entire community of neighbors and yourself about what people are planting around you, what you're planting. And think long-term is think of what you're doing today in your field when you're spraying for cover for weevil. That will have an effect on your neighbors, your own fields beside you, and in the future also, if you're going to uh, kill a lot, of, a lot of parasitoids, hopefully you're going to conserve them rather so that you, you build up in that uh, community of natural enemies and pollinators and you have a vibrant, healthy, diverse ecosystem. That's it. Good, thanks, Hector. Paul, Paul, and then Keith. I think, I think my message is, is going to be 
keep those messy areas. If you're if you're on the fence, or literally, if you're on the fence row, um, keep the messy area rather than get rid of it. Um, the balance of evidence that we've collected to date suggests that yes, this is a complex story, and it's a hard one to tell in 15 minutes, but the balance of evidence suggests that messy areas are an insurance policy. They're an insurance policy by providing, creating reservoirs of those natural enemies that will come into play in bad years. And that's also what Hector says when he says, think long-term, you gotta think that some years are gonna be bad and some years aren't, but it's for those bad years in particular that those messy areas are gonna provide that insurance policy. So if you're on the fence, don't take out the fence row. All right, thanks, Paul. Keith. I think Paul's practiced that line. You, you have a bit <laughs> of an idea what I'm going to say there, Jay, but but uh, to apply it to this panel uh, it might might be a little a little different. Is there's there's a lot to learn about insects, and and while scouting is my top piece of agronomic advice, almost regardless of what the question is, uh, one of the things that you might want to consider is. Uh, while you're scouting in your field, swing that sweet nut in the ditch, take a bit of a look at what else is around in terms of ecosystem services, because I know for a new agronomist, the first time they swing a net in a canola field, it's actually a little bit intimidating in terms of the variety of things that are in some of the fields. Some of the fields aren't, are, are restricted to a single pest species, but there's a lot of beneficial insects you can find in the field. But the first time you swing a net in a ditch, there's a whole world of entomology that opened up for you. And I think it's really eye-opening to understand what's in those messy bits. Uh, and that's maybe a challenge that we can lay out for some of the producers and scouts out there. Thank you to Paul, Hector, Sean, and Keith. Also, thank you to the host organizations of this webinar series, SAS Canola, Alberta Canola, Manitoba Canola Growers, and the Canola Council of Canada. You can watch all segments of this webinar, including the slides, at youtube.com slash canola council. For lots more on insect identification, thresholds, and management, please see the insect section at canolaencyclopedia.ca. It has lots of information on all major insect pests of canola. And finally, Please register for upcoming Canola Watch webinars to hear the content firsthand and participate in the live Q&A. Find details at your Provincial Canola Association website or at canolacouncil.org in the events section under the About Us tab. This has been a Canola Watch podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>